Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 123, Connecticut Invades Wyoming. There were many consequences of the Treaty of Paris. There were long-term ones, such as pushing Prussia away from Britain and towards Russia, something which would lead to the partitions of Poland. There were medium-term consequences, such as the financial crisis, which would, over the next few years, lead to Louis XV's clashes with the Parlement and a series of taxes he would dream up, and then there were short-term ones, such as the collapse of Butte's ministry. I think the best that can be said of Butte is that he wasn't qualified for the job. He lacked the mental strength to be Prime Minister. After plotting for years to get the job, he hesitated when George III offered it, which should say everything you need to know. He was deeply unpopular. For one, he was Scottish. Our old friend, Henry Fox, had the following to say about the Scottish. Every man has, at some time or other, found a Scotchman in his way, and everybody has therefore damned the Scotch, and this hatred, their excessive nationality, has continually inflamed. End quote. While he was of course talking about the 18th century, this doesn't seem too out of character with how the Conservative Party treats the SNP today. The Treaty of Paris was arguably the most favourable peace treaty the British ever achieved. But Pitt claimed the British had returned too much. While this line of reasoning didn't persuade MPs, it certainly persuaded the public. Butte had been the person who ended the reign of the Walpolean Whigs, which had made him many enemies within Parliament. He was viewed as merely a royal favourite who didn't deserve the job, which was true. Butte received piles of abuse and finally couldn't take it, resigning in April 1763. The king looked around for a replacement prime minister and found limited options. There was Henry Fox, but to steal a line from Anderson's Crucible of War, he was a man devoid of every conviction except the unshakable belief that he deserved to be rich. Clearly, Fox could not be first lord of the treasury. Pitt and Newcastle were both obviously not going to be given the job, so the king ended up turning to George Grenville. Grenville was a rising star in Whig politics. He wasn't a first-rate player, but had spent some time in the cabinet. He was able to hold great influence in the Commons, not because he was a great speaker, far from it. A figure at the time described him as, to a proverb, tedious. He was long-winded and droned without an ounce of eloquence, but he was a hard worker, he was able to grasp legislation, he was logical and made himself the most well-informed person on any topic. He won people with his arguments. That said, he was tactless, uncreative and a terrible statesman. When looking at how things go so very wrong for the British, the place you really have to start with is George Grenville. Grenville had a lot of things to deal with, 
mostly financial matters, which we'll deal with in a few episodes' time, and the matter of John Wilkes, which, to be honest, I'm not even going to touch, uh, but which was something of a political crisis of its own. Uh, do a Google search for John Wilkes and the North Britain. If you want more information on that, it's it's quite interesting, but for us, we're going to look at the war that was breaking out in North America, led by the Ottawa chief, Pontiac. It's been a while since we've checked in on North America, during the capture of Montreal and the Cherokee War. Since then, the chaos in Carolina had been brought to an end. Amherst began a process of reforms to Indian trade, and began to offer some regulation in the backcountry, while Johnson had managed to bring the Indian tribes of Detroit over to the British tribes. The only interest Whitehall had in the Americas was ensuring that the colonies continued to provide provincial troops, which they did, albeit with reservations. They struggled to understand why they needed to continue raising provincials after the Indian threat subsided and Canada was conquered, but the subsidies continued and most were happy to go along with it. The major exceptions were Maryland, still suffering its chronic internal disputes, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, you'll recall, had been reluctant to set aside its internal differences between the Assembly and the Penn family, and was only forced into it when the dead victims of Indian raids were brought into Philadelphia. With the Indian threat removed, the internal disputes resumed. There seemed to be a degree of enthusiasm amongst the colonies, but this was not returned by the British. Amherst continually complained about the American provincials, though these complaints were directed towards London, rather than the Americans themselves. In addition to complaints about lazy American troops, London was also getting reports about smuggling. You'll recall that Pitt had once attempted to ban all trade with the French colonies and failed miserably. All this had resulted was the intensification of smuggling. The occasional attempt to resolve the problem was made, notably in Massachusetts by Governor Bernard and Deputy Governor Thomas Hutchinson, where they tried to help a customs surveyor bring down a corrupt customs collector in 1761. It did not go well. When they attempted to use writs of assistance, general warrants which enabled customs officers to search locations where they suspected smuggled goods might be stored, the merchant's counsel, James Otis Jr., caused a local sensation with his arguments that this would unleash a monster of oppression. Hutchinson and Bernard won the case eventually, but it redefined politics in Massachusetts, casting the players as heroes, Otis, and villains, Hutchinson, in roles that would continue long after the original issue subsided. London continued to receive reports about the American colonies, but while the war continued, North America was considered a low priority, and so nothing was done. No policies were formed. This let an unstable situation get out of control. A lesson that we, after spending the last 30 or so episodes on the Seven Year War, know well 
is that the Indians were crucial to British success. Canada starved because the British cut it off from further supply from France, but this was only important in the first place because the Indians would not support the French after Fort William Henry. Indian raids had devastated the British in the early years. At the time, the Euro-Americans stubbornly refused to learn this lesson. Instead, the rate of migration into the backcountry increased in an uncontrollable manner. To win the Indians over, the British had explicitly promised they would not move into the Ohio, but Pittsburgh was already becoming a major settlement. By the spring of 1761, settlements already started appearing in the Champlain Corridor, and a miniature land rush began in the Mohawk Valley. And then there was the infamous case of the New Hampshire Grants. In the four years before the start of the war, the governor of New Hampshire created 16 townships west of the Connecticut River and north of Massachusetts. Technically, this land belonged to New York, but the war made the conflict over who owned these towns decidedly unimportant. However, the war was soon over. In 1760 and 1761, the governor created 64 new townships, and by mid-1764 had created 128. As you can expect, this created a great deal of conflict between New York, which held the rights to the towns, and the New Englander inhabitants. This conflict was the root of the troubled birth of America's 14th state, Vermont. This thread of continual expansion was common across North America and would become a major theme in the 1760s, but we need to turn our attention now to one specific instance, the colonization of the Wyoming Valley. Now, before we begin, a point of clarity. The Wyoming are an Indian tribe that lived in Pennsylvania in the Wyoming Valley. In the 19th century, when the Indians were pushed westwards, an area of the northwest was suggested as a temporary home for the Wyoming, which thus gained the name. Today, we're dealing with the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania, not the future state of Wyoming. Got that? Good. In the early days of the colonial era, it was fairly common practice for a colony to claim territory all the way to the Pacific. One such colony to do so was Connecticut. Its 1662 charter stated that its western border was the Pacific. Since then, unfortunately for Connecticut, other colonies appeared that got in the way, but Connecticut still dreamed big. Fast forward to the 1750s, when the Susquehanna Company tried to purchase Iroquois land in Pennsylvania. The company received much interest from land-hungry Connecticut farmers, and was informally encouraged by the colonial government, much as the governor of New Hampshire would set up New Hampshire towns within New York. Connecticut's government could say it had the right to establish townships within Pennsylvania. As the Seven Years' War developed, the situation became even stranger. 
The land which was supposedly purchased by the Susquehanna Company had been promised to the Eastern Delawares in the Treaty of Easton, and the Eastern Conference made this subject to Iroquois approval. Then there was the added factor of the pens. This wasn't an issue for years. The Eastern Delawares were the only people who could realistically settle in the Wyoming Valley, but in the autumn of 1760, it was discovered that 20 settlers associated with the Susquehanna Company had established a village there. They reported that everything was fine because the Connecticut Assembly supported them, and Pennsylvania Governor James Hamilton, concerned at the threat to Pennsylvania's sovereignty and at a potential Indian reprisal, responded by banning any unauthorised settlement. Connecticut's governor, Thomas Fitch, said there was no official link between Connecticut and this private company. The Penn family asked the Board of Trade and the Privy Council to block further activity by the Susquehanna Company. Colonisation continued. Three more towns were set up along the Delaware, and by 1762 they had reached within miles of the settlement of Tidiskung, the king of the Delawares. Though Tidiskung was actually out of town, dealing with a result of Easton that the Crown would investigate whether the Pens or Iroquois had defrauded the Delawares, it did not go well, and Tidiskung returned embittered to Wyoming, only to find Thomas King, an Oneida chief, there with a group of Iroquois, reporting that the Iroquois had forced a group of Yankees out of the valley and instructed him to wait for Six Nation orders. A few days later, 150 Connecticuters returned. Tidiskung ordered them to withdraw. The Yankees left, vowing to return with 3,000 settlers in the spring. Groups continued to arrive, hiding supplies, then leaving. Tidiskung asked Governor Hamilton for help in November, who encouraged him to stand firm but not shed blood, and advised him to consult with the Iroquois, while he would ask the British to halt the Connecticuters. Tidiskung needed tangible support rather than words, and he sent a war belt to the western Delawares in the Ohio, who seemed to have supported him. However, when the Yankee settlers arrived in the spring of 1763, they found Tidiskung dead, killed in a fire. We do know that Mingos were at the camp, and that they gave him alcohol, which made him unconscious, but we do not know whether they started the fires, or whether this was done at the behest of the Six Nations, or the Susquehanna Company. The Yankee settlers began to build villages, but they withdrew shortly after in summer, when word arrived of a great Indian uprising in the west. This uprising, flaming across the Great Lakes, is where we shall turn our attention to in our next episode, Pontiac's War. Thanks for listening, I'll see you then.